Our U.S. military and military veterans are our country's greatest assets. But service comes with a price. Post-traumatic stress is our enemy, and our mission today is Operation Healing Heroes. Brought to you by Great Clips. Hey everyone, it's Jay Garstecki, and welcome to another edition of the Operation Healing Heroes podcast, where we document the lives of our U.S. military veterans one story at a time. In addition, we provide resources for veterans and their family members who might be struggling with post-traumatic stress so they can get the help that they absolutely deserve. Be sure to check out our TV show, Operation Healing Heroes, on Discovery Channel, Waypoint TV, Wired to Fish TV, Amazon Prime, and YouTube. Today, we'll be featuring Eric Ryan Anderson, a United States Marine Corps veteran who also served as a volunteer firefighter and law enforcement officer in Florida. Bill even ran for Sumter County Sheriff. Join me as we share his story. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. And we're back and we are talking to... uh, retired U.S. Marine Corps veteran, uh, Eric Ryan Anderson. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm doing outstanding, sir. Thank you for the welcome. Hey, we appreciate it. Uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, share your, your life story with us. I, I know it's uh, you and I had a chance to speak a little bit off air, and it's uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to do this podcast. I think it's going to be really cool. So I'm excited about all the different things that you've accomplished in your life, and uh, we're going to talk more about uh, what you're doing now after the military. But uh, let's start out real quick. Uh, Eric was in the Marine Corps from 1982 to 1990. Uh, he also served as a volunteer firefighter, and uh, he also was a prior law enforcement officer. Um, also has a nonprofit organization, a horse training facility called Spirit Equine Therapy that we're going to talk about. Eric, before we get to all of that, uh, if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about uh, you and life growing up? Okay, so let's start in the beginning. I was born in San Jose, California, and I was adopted. I never met my real parents. I was adopted to a man and a woman. He was a Navy. He was in the Navy at the time. And my mother was uh, from Anacortes, Washington. And they uh, they were in California. She had earlier in her life put a child up for adoption. Hmm. Being an unwed mother back in that time, you know how it is. And I actually got to meet him recently. So I've met her real biological son. Unfortunately, she had passed by that time. I spent some time in Washington State growing up, went to three different elementary schools there before I moved to Florida. In Florida, I went to four elementary schools, three junior highs, and two high schools. When I was 17 years old, my my life was kind of different. I really didn't have anybody at the house. My parents had moved out, and I was living in an RV and working construction. It got to the point where I realized I needed to do something, and I decided, well, I wanted to join the Marine Corps. Because if you're going to do it, you might as well do it right. So I went down to see a recruiter, and the recruiter told me, dude, he goes, "Uh, (laughs) 
you're only 17 years old. You really need to graduate from high school. And my mother agreed with him and said that she wouldn't sign the papers for me to join unless I got my GED. Well, three, three weeks later, I had my GED. I was able to go through the program, take the test, challenge the test, and then get my high school diploma or what they call a GED. So I joined the United States Marine Corps on January 27th, 1982. I went to boot camp later on. I actually got, I was supposed to go in on a buddy system with a friend of mine, childhood friend, but I got involved in a motorcycle accident and wasn't able to ship with him. So we lost the buddy program. Went in in May. While I was in Paris Island, South Carolina, I had a little bit of an issue with being, uh, well, they called it belligerent and got recycled in boot camp, went back an entire week in training uh, because I had saluted a corpsman and I was I had a belligerent issue. And I want you to know that if you have a belligerent issue, there is nowhere that can cure it like Paris Island, South Carolina. <laughs> you have a captain look you in the face and say, you know what? I think that you will probably be the recruit of the Marine Corps. You're going to spend four years here at Paris Island. That was not on my list of things I wanted to do in my life. So I subsequently, I graduated from Paris Island, South Carolina. And at the time, they put me in a, on a contract to be aviation supply. Now, I'm not talking down aviation supply, but I did not join the Marine Corps to operate a typewriter. And at the time, I'd have been a Remington Raider. I was spending Tuesdays and Thursdays in remedial typing class. That was not what Eric Ryan Anderson wanted to do. No, huh? So I had a talk with the first sergeant, and the first sergeant squared me away on that. He said, let me explain something to you, young man. This is the Marine Corps. We tell you what you're going to do. Do you understand that? This isn't an option. Well, I found out from one of the barracks sergeants, the only way out of there was you had to fail two tests. The next two tests, I probably had the lowest score in history. <laughs> I got myself... Go ahead, sir. No, I was going to say, I want to get into your military part, but I want to I want to learn a little bit more about life growing up and kind of, I, I know you alluded to the fact of what led you into the military, but give me an idea. Life growing up, obviously, you said you were adopted in California. Did you have siblings at that time, or was there any other, uh, were you an only child? Well, I had a little brother. He was two years, I was two years old when he passed away. He okay. passed away from uh, SIDS, which is uh, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Uh, I don't know the particulars behind that. I was a little young at the time. Like I said, I was two years old. His name was Kevin. Hmm. And Kevin passed away as a child, as a baby. Uh, we grew up. At that time, my mother was married to a man named Anderson, Richard Anderson. And they ended up getting divorced when I was five years old. Hmm. Uh, she married another gentleman who had an alcohol issue as well, a guy named Ron. He, uh, he drank a lot and was, he, he would sometimes would be abusive to her. And it was kind of a, uh, it was a disaster in every level. Their, their whole relationship was just miserable. I can remember being at the, uh, they used to have a thing called the Taco Tico, if you ever remember that. <laughs> Taco Tico. I can remember one night we were in the in the parking lot there. I'm in the back seat, and them two are at the front of the car having a domestic squabble when the police show up, and uh, they ended up locking him up and taking him to jail for the way he was treating my mother at the time. Hmm. 
She ended up leaving him, and then she married another guy, and a guy named Danny, who also had an alcohol problem and couldn't keep his hands to himself. Uh, it was it was pretty rough as a kid because you really never knew what you were coming home to. The alcohol and the drinking, the the smoking. You walk in the house and there was like a layer of smoke through the house. The only real uh, home life that was I would consider squared away was the fact that we had really great grandparents. My grandmother and grandfather were like the the anchor. I can remember. At one point, when my mother was divorced, we went and lived out of grandma's property uh, right across the yard from her. And you had grandma and grandpa there all the time. And that was a really, it was a blessing to have somebody that actually had morals growing up to look to. That was probably the only consistency I had as a kid. Later on, uh, she ended up uh, with a boyfriend for quite a few years before I joined the Marine Corps that, uh, they got along well, and one of the last things I ever did for her before she passed away was I was a notary in Florida. I was able to marry her to him the day before she died, and she died from lung cancer. Uh, some of the things that I did, I we before I joined the court, I was at the. I told you that I really didn't have anybody at home, and I ended up going to uh, the James E. Strait show, which is a uh, it's the fair. The fair was in town. We lived in a tent for two weeks, you know, at the fair. That was part of my uh, transition to adulthood. I, my first real job where I got a W-2, I worked at Walt Disney World. I was at, in the zoo crew. And for those of you that don't know, the zoo crew is all the animals. I was uh, the big bad wolf. If I'd have been about two inches, two inches difference in the height, I could have been Tigger. Now, being Tigger is cool. Everybody loves Tigger. Right. But the big bad wolf, not so much. You got your tongue pulled on. You get punched in the stomach. <laughs> big bad wolf was just not the guy. And I'm telling you, if you're going to need therapy, that's the guy that's going to cause it. Learned some really cool things at Walt Disney World. But my first opportunity for uh, really riding a real horse was at Disney. I can remember during orientation, they told us that uh, anytime you could go out and ride the horses at Disney, well, one night after work, we went out to the to the stables there to ride horses. And uh, horses are a, an animal that has uh, a consistency in their life. They know what's supposed to happen. They know at a certain time they do this and a certain time they do that. And Walt Disney World is very structured, uh, almost like they have OCD to the point where it's got to be CDO. So it's an alphabetical order, you know, just <laughs> they were really, really consistent. And the fact that we had messed with those horses that night, they weren't even allowed. They couldn't even put the horses out in the park the next day. Uh, Disney didn't think that was a real good idea for us. The uh, The other lessons that I learned growing up, I, I did construction. Uh, like I said, about from about 15 to the time I was 17, I worked construction. And a guy named Gordon Haynes, American Home Builder Enterprises, hired us. He paid us like $3 an hour to help on the construction site. And we were the guys that picked up the two by fours. Uh, we did all the work around there on days that we got rained out. Gordon would always take us somewhere. He'd either take us to one of the parks or we'd go fishing or we would go do something cool. He never had kids. So we were kind of like his, his foster kids. And he would 
show us uh, a good time as kids because we were so poor we couldn't even pay attention. Hmm. The uh, other things that I can remember growing up, the you know the fish and things like that that we did, uh, we'd spend all day down at the, in Florida. We have ponds. Ponds are everywhere. They're just like mud puddles all over the place. And we'd catch mud puppies and fish and uh, take little things and float around the water with them. I lived in a trailer park for a long time uh, over Orlando, advanced trailer park. And at the end of it, we had a little retention pond. And we caught more little critters, uh, fish, snakes, lizards. Uh, I can remember... <laughs> One morning, bringing a water moccasin into the house. And, oh, no. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> I got explained to me that I needed to go take that back outside and, and don't touch those anymore. Wow. Uh, so not growing up with a father figure, I, I'm guessing that had to be hard. Or the father figures that you did have <clears throat> obviously were um, probably not role models. No, they they certainly weren't role models for anybody that you wanted to uh to grow up right. There's a lot of alcohol, uh, drug scene and things of that nature. Just not, not what you would want your kids around. But at the time it was, it was the norm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Back in that, is that in the seventies or eighties? Seventies. Yes, right? yeah, yes, sir. I can tell you how squared away my mother was and she was this kind of person. I think I was like 19 or 20 years old. The first time I saw it, her and I were driving down the road and this guy pulled out right in front of her. And I look over and she's doing something with her left hand between her leg and the door of the car. And I said, uh, what are you doing? She says, well, I flipped him off. I said, he can't even see it. She goes, I know, I know, but it makes me feel better. <laughs> and that was the kind of person she was. She really spent more time at school than I did because I was usually in trouble. I was acting out. And uh, Mrs. Singhouse, Mrs. Wilson, and all of those thought my mother had a free trip to heaven because she was raising Lucifer. And at the <laughs> time, they probably weren't too far off. The guy, the guy I joined the Marine Corps with, his parents were the Vandal Watchers at Cayley Elementary School. And... There were some times during our childhood that he wasn't even allowed to hang out with me because they were pretty sure I was trouble. <laughs> I never really got, I never really got in any real trouble, never did anything. And there, I wasn't a thief and I didn't break things. It's just, I was kind of a loose cannon. Yeah. Trouble just always seemed to find guy. you, huh? Well, I would get into trouble only because it was uh, maybe not the best judgment. There things that I would, you know playing on roofs and jumping off stuff and stuff like that. Yeah. But not doing There's things thing, that are going to cause you to go to jail or anything like that. Exactly. I can tell you when I got, I got brought home by the uh, manager at the trailer park a couple of times. And the, he one time told my parents, they said, you know, your, your son is always up to something, but I can tell you this. If he tells you that he didn't do it, you can bank on it that he didn't do it. <laughs> Because he would always tell you the truth. Wow. And, uh, one thing that I never did was sacrifice my integrity when it came to that. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we are going to learn about Eric's time in service. Um, we'll be right back. 
This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Warrior Rising. We help veterans succeed in business. Warrior Rising empowers U.S. military veterans and their immediate family members by providing them opportunities to create sustainable businesses, perpetuate the hiring of fellow American veterans, and earn their future. We accomplish this by translating your training, values, and work ethic into a powerful opportunity for success. Visit www.warriorrising.org for more information. And we are talking to Marine Corps veteran Eric Ryan Anderson. Uh, Eric, again, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We certainly appreciate it. We learned about life growing up, and uh, it was a rough one. I mean, I'll, I'll say that. Definitely, obviously, uh, having moved a lot and uh, not having a real father figure in your life, uh, I'm sure it had to be difficult. But um, I think you made the right decision. Would that be accurate to say when you said you you, you joined the military? Oh, yes. Yes. I I can tell you, I absolutely 100% believe the United States Marine Corps, you're not just joining the military. You're joining what has been described as the largest cult in the world. We are a band of brothers, and it's something that stays with you the rest of your life. Love it. I love it. Uh, my. My grandfather was on the beaches in Normandy in World War II uh, in the Army and survived to tell about it. My dad was a Marine. My brother was a Marine. I have a special place in my heart for Marines. I never got to serve myself, but uh, I'm hoping that by me doing what I'm doing for our veterans today, I'm giving back in some way, shape, or form or trying to make a trying to make a difference and just, again, saying thank you to the men and women who provided our freedom because freedom isn't free and you know, some people paid the ultimate sacrifice and those who didn't are continuing to serve us every day. So again, thank you for your service. I can't, I can't say thank you enough, but, um, I know you had mentioned you went into the, into the military on a buddy system. Um, how did that go? Well, what happened was I got involved in a motorcycle accident prior to my departure and they will not ship you with any kind of open wounds. And I had some, so I did not get to go in on the buddy system. Oh, okay. When I reported into Paris Island, South Carolina, I was doing it on my own. And honestly, I think it was it was good that way. I got recycled for being belligerent and uh, went from 1st Battalion 1032 to 2nd Battalion 2032, which is a week back in training. Got to do that over again. I'm the only Marine that I've ever met that went around the horn. And around the horn is... You have a series, there's four platoons in a series, and there's drill instructors for each platoon. And the head, that's what Marines call the bathroom or the latrine, are connected in the uh, 1st Battalion barracks. So they took me around and I got to get thrashed by every drill instructor in the series before I packed my trash and did the sea bag drag across the grinder to go join 2032. <laughs> So before we get into that real quick, did your buddy end up going in, though, um, when you guys were both supposed to go in together? Did he go in? Yes, sir, he did. He went in He went in and became aviation crash crew, and uh, he passed away about a year ago. Hmm. And he, was, uh, he had a pretty rough time in the Marine Corps with, with uh, the duty station that he went to. Uh, he got mixed up in some stuff, and he ended up getting out on a other than honorable discharge. Uh, I may have been able to save him had we been there together because he'd had somebody, you know, to to lean on to Mm -hmm. help direct him, but it didn't work out that way. God had other plans. So sorry about that. I just wanted to find out if he had, if he had gone into the military and, and, uh, 
Yeah, thanks for explaining that. So, so obviously boot camp uh, was a little rough for you. You get to go around twice, so to speak. <laughs> it really, it really wasn't rough. It was my first opportunity to have some real structure in my life, mm-hmm. because up until that point, Eric did what Eric wanted to do, and the Marine Corps had other ideas, and they did ultimately square me away. And when we talk about mental imprinting, they really did imprint me. I, I learned the Marine Corps way to a level that will stick with me to the rest of my life. I still lace my boots left over right. I still do everything that I did as a Marine and think like a Marine, talk like a Marine, carry myself like a Marine. And it's because that was the first real structure that I had in my life. I think the, uh, the aviation supply was not what I wanted to do. Like I explained earlier, I became, uh, Aviation Supply School in Meridian, Mississippi. There was uh, like 18 of us Marines, and there was a, a whole bunch of sailors and sailorettes that are there in school. Their yeoman school was there in Meridian. So I had a good time there. Uh, on base, you were allowed to drink, so I drank more idiot oil than I probably should have. And I didn't do quite as well in school as I should have, but I really did not want to be in that MOS. And I spoke with one of the barrack sergeants and he told me, he goes, uh, I'm going to tell you what, he goes, this is one of the better MOSs in the Marine Corps. He says, you're going to, you're going to be living in a barracks, probably won't be deployed much. This is a job you really want to keep. And he said, just buckle down and do it. And I said, what if I really didn't want to be here? He says, well, you, you can fail two tests and you'll be on your way to the fleet somewhere. You'll be a ground pounder or a cannon cocker but you probably don't really want to do that. And, uh, I really did. So I did, I failed two tests and ended up going to camp Pendleton, California, nine, two, zero, five, five reported in at Mainside and checked in the next morning. They loaded us into a cattle car. Cause at that time they still moved us around in cattle cars and took me out to a place called Las Pogas. And Las Pogas on Camp Pendleton at the time, the regimental CP was a Quonson hut. Kind of like you see on, uh, uh, oh my gosh, Sergeant Carter and whatever his, what is his name? Do you remember the, uh, I'll think of it, in Gomer Pyle. It was a Gomer Pyle type of barracks. Yes, sir. I reported in there and I was like, ooh, this isn't good. (laughs) He wasn't lying when he told me I don't want to fail these two tests. <laughs> <laughs> right. I reported into the 2nd Battalion, 11th Marines, and they were currently in the field when I got there. And when they came back, I had all these fleet Marines right out of the field. And I was like, wow, dude, you have just entered the twilight zone. And I did. So I spent a year there. Can you explain ahead, to me what's the difference between fleet Marines so the fleet Marines are Marines that you you see on the war movies. Those are the guys, the O3s, the O8s, the ground pounders. They're the ground the ground force for the United States Marine Corps. Like they're infantry. Were the guys that are, were the guy, well, yes, sir. And the support, direct support. That's yep. your artillery units, those, those sort of. We're the ones that are on board ship at any given moment. We're on ships all over the country, all over the world. We're the ones that are uh, 
you have what's called a near-term preposition ships. You'll be on an airplane and flying across the world, and your gear is already set up for you. Hmm. Fleet Marines are the ones that that they make the movies about. Okay. Thanks. So now I'm in the the Fleet Marine Force and uh, uh, artillery unit. I did artillery school there right on Camp Pendleton and became what's called an, a 0811, a cannon cocker. My howitzer was the 105 howitzer. Fast forward a couple of years, I became a section chief. I ended up going to uh, Hawaii, Kaneohe Bay Marine Corps Air Station with the 1st Battalion, 12th Marine Regiment in Kaneohe. And we were in, in support of the 3rd Marines. I did two Western Pacific cruises out of there, BLT-13, BLT-23, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Singapore, Australia, the Philippines, Korea, Okinawa, mainland Japan, Thailand, all over in the Western Pacific. And I did all of that by the time I was 19 years old. Wow. My, my, some of the folks I knew still hadn't graduated from high school yet, and I'd been all over the Orient. <laughs> From there, I re-enlisted and went to back to Camp Pendleton. I was became a platoon sergeant there. And being a, a fleet marine platoon sergeant is one of the coolest things I think you can do in the whole world. I got to do a, uh, a tour as the School of Infantry as an instructor, which basic infantry school is one of the schools that you get right out of boot camp where you learn your MOS. And that was a really, really good duty for a sergeant. <laughs> and if you have a sense of humor, it can be a really, a really just incredible time. I can remember uh, one morning, it was like, like 02, 02.30. I'm walking through the barracks and I seen a mouse run across the barracks. Now, when you're going to a school like that, in the opening, you're told not to bring any pogey bait into the barracks. You bring pogey bait, you get ants, you get mice, you get critters living with you, and it's just not hygienically correct. Mm -hmm. So if you see a mouse, you can bet there's pogey bait somewhere. So I go, I have one of my Marines flick on the lights. Everybody jumps online. Now they're on the yellow lines going down the center of the squad bay, standing at the position of attention. And I explained to them that we had a communist infiltrator in our barracks, and we needed to catch him. Well, they didn't catch him. They ended up killing him. So now we have a dead prisoner of war. We ended up getting a shoebox, putting Mickey Mouse in the shoebox, and we did a we did a funeral, military funeral, and a wall locker inspection. They had the the corporals went through each wall locker and got the pogey bait that they weren't allowed to have, brought it to the center of the squad bay. We put Mickey Mouse in the in the uh, box, and we ended up doing the funeral march out to the dipsty dumpster with all the pogey bait. The next morning I get a call from the sergeant's major come to his office and he explained to me that we wouldn't be doing any more early morning funeral funerals for any mice. But it was it was fun nonetheless. It was one of those cool things that you, you get to talk about after you leave the Marine Corps. Right, right. It's something that'll stick with you forever. Yes, sir. The other thing we had there when I was at the School of Infantry is we had my first music man. Now, one of the things you did on the guard duty there was you played all of the music. You played taps, you played reveille, adjutant's call, all of that got done from the guard shack. 
And my first one was he had red hair. Now, Marines don't have a lot of hair, but the little bit he had was red. From then on, all my music men had red hair. One, one of the guard shifts, I didn't have a, a red-haired Marine in the whole, out of 76 privates. Not a single Marine had red hair. Huh. But, there, but there was one down at the chow hall. And uh, I made a deal with the the chow hall that I would come trade them one of my Marines for one of their Marines so I could have a red-headed Marine for my music man. <laughs> what we failed to do was let them know over at the, the S shop that we had switched their duties out. And uh, I ended up getting a little bit of trouble for that as well. <laughs> That's funny. Some, sometimes not everybody has a sense of humor. Yeah, I was going to say, or doesn't see things the way you did, huh? <laughs> right, right. The uh, the West Packs were a really, really good time. When you spend 21 days on a ship, you learn to live with each other or you work it out. And one of the things I would always do with my platoon is if two of my Marines got into a fight during the day, they ended up moving in with each other that evening. And every single time by the next morning, they were friends. They They could interact the way they needed to. Basically, we don't have... We don't have any disagreements, boys. We will work it out because that's what we have to do. Love it. I love it. That's great. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I mean, you guys, like you said, it's it's the um, it's a cult like following. Um, I, I know that, uh, like you said, you guys got each other's backs, and um, that's just the Marine Corps way of life, from what I understand. And talking to my family and friends that have been in the military or in the Marine Corps, they say it's just it's forever too. It never ends. You know, my, uh, my wife and I, uh, we've both been married before now to other people. And she was married to a gentleman that was in the army. And, uh, she, for, we, we were coming back to Florida with our horses on, on our horse trailer. And we were looking for a place to spend the night and we pulled into a place and the guy at the gate, he says, I'm sorry, sir. He goes, we don't have any openings. And then he walked around the front of my truck and he saw the Marine Corps emblem and he came back. He says, were, were you a Marine? I said, yes, sir. He goes, hang on a minute. And he walked in there and he found us a spot. <laughs> my wife looked at me and said, what's that? And I said, that's the Marine Corps way. And sure enough, he got at the spot. We had a place that night. Uh, another, another thing she got to witness was we had a really good friend that was graduating from college to become a doctor and her, uh, her father had got arrested the night before on some felonious crap, but he got arrested nonetheless. And we went to the jail to get him out so we could have him there for her graduation. We walked into the front desk and the lady behind the desk said, I'm sorry, sir, there's no way you're going to get him out of here before three o'clock, you know, 1500. And is there anybody we can talk to? And she pointed to a guy that was walking through the lobby. And as he was walking through the lobby, we followed him into his office. When we got into his office, behind the desk was a big Eagle Globe and anchor. Hmm. We looked at each other and go, we're probably getting him out. We told him what our deal was, and we had him out of jail there in 20 minutes. Nice. That's the way Marines roll. It's okay. just one of those things. So uh, you shared some great memories as, as far as your, your time in service with us. You, I know you said you re-upped um, and went in as a platoon sergeant. Uh, at what point did you realize it was time to get out of the military? Well, towards the end of my last enlistment, 
my colonel calls calls me up and he says, Sergeant Anderson, I need you to come up here to the battalion. I want you to be part of headquarters platoon. Now, I'm a fleet Marine. I'm an artillery Marine. And being in headquarters means that you would have what we sometimes call the pogues. The guys who, who keep your SRBs up, the all the admin folks, your S1s, 2s, and 3s, 4s, are all in your headquarters. And I was like, okay, sir. I go, what, what do you want me to do? He goes, I want you to be the battalion career planner. Now, the battalion career planner is the guy that helps Marines get reenlisted in the Marine Corps. At that time, we were last in the 1st Marine Division in reenlistments. We needed to do something about that. So he sent me to career planner school, and I became a, a career planner for the unit. And while I was the career planner for the unit, that meant that I got to talk to everybody that was getting ready to get out of the Marine Corps everybody that was going to EAS during that time. And I talked to most of the senior staff non-commissioned officers who had been in, you know, 16 to 20 years. And every one of them said, if they had to do it over again, they'd have got out after their second enlistment. The reason was that they'd already done the Marine Corps. Why spend your whole life here? Now, had I talked to the Marines that got out, they probably would have said, stay in. But I was only talking to the ones that had stayed in, and they said, get out. So I did. I found myself a, a job with the Washington State Patrol, and I got out and became what was called a man mansion cadet. But my, my whole thought process behind it was, you've already been a Marine. You're, you're going around life one time. You want to experience as much as you can. Get out and go do something different. And that's what made my decision to get out. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we're going to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about transitioning out because uh, as, as someone who helped other you know, Marines transition out and back into civilian life, I know that that's a difficult thing for many. So uh, we're going to talk specifically about uh, transitioning from uh, this, the um, military careers back into civilian life. We'll be right back. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. And we are talking to Eric Ryan Anderson, a U.S. Marine Corps veteran. Uh, Eric, again, thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, let's talk about their transition out of the military and back into civilian life. I know that uh, many service members that I've spoken to have, have struggled with that. Um, and being someone who was responsible for helping with that, what was that like? Wow. So I got out of the United States Marine Corps and I reported to Lacey, Washington. I was going to be a mansion cadet with the Washington State Patrol. There's probably not a further distance you need to travel mentally from the Fleet Marine Force to being a Washington State Trooper. It was, uh, it was incredible for me. As Marines, everything was black and white, and now you were you were going into an area that had gray in it and uh it was 
it was during the time of the first Gulf War, and it was a, a kind of a, a it was a kind of a crazy transition for me. It really was. Uh, they called themselves a paramilitary organization, but it wasn't any military that I was understood. Uh, I can remember at one time we were having a anti-war demonstration at the Capitol campus there in Washington. Evergreen State College was there and they were demonstrating because they did not feel that we needed to be at the Gulf War. The uh, Sergeant Merrill was our sergeant. He came over the radio or actually one of the one of the other cadets came over the radio and said, uh, Sergeant Merrill, he says, go ahead. I said, sir, they're burning the flag. They're burning the flag on the steps. And Sergeant Merrill's next words were, where's Anderson? No, nothing else. He wanted to know where I was. And they <laughs> said, well, he's, he's over at the mansion. Do not let him leave there. And then he came over there and got me and sent me home because he did not want me in that environment because he knew how much I love this country. You got to know being adopted, you, your country is all you got. This is who we are. You're an American. You're, you don't belong to any nationality. You don't belong to any race. You don't belong to any of that. You're an American. That's who you are. And now they're burning my flag. The one thing that represents who we are was being burnt on the steps of the Capitol campus. That doesn't work for me. And that transition was a little bit rough as well. I felt that things needed to be the way they were in the Marine Corps, and they just were not the way they were in the Marine Corps. You have a, a different way of communicating with other Marines than you do with civilians, and that transition was really rough for me. And I ended up leaving the Washington State Patrol and going to uh, Arizona. I drove a fuel tanker out of Flagstaff, Arizona, and my best friend that I was in the Marine Corps with he was there. He was driving a truck as well. And, you know, driving a truck, you don't have as much interaction with civilians as you do, you know, in some of the other jobs that you could get. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I'm working directly with somebody that I've basically spent the last eight years of my life with was uh, it was welcome. And I think when the transition that we do from military to the civilian world the more we surround ourselves with other military personnel, the easier it is. That camaraderie, the esprit de corps, the understanding of one another, it's just incredible. When I left there, I went to Florida. My, uh, my ex-wife at the time was moving to Florida. She was PCS and to Pensacola, and my daughter was going there as well. So I moved down to Florida and uh, got a dry, job driving a truck there before I became a city cop in Leesburg. The, uh, the city cop time was a little bit different as well. Uh, I can remember one night we got called to a, uh, we were clearing a parking lot and the owner didn't want all the kids in his parking lot because, you know, they leave stuff lying around and pollute the, the area. I don't know what his real reason was, but he just didn't want kids in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. When we showed up, the uh, one of the guys was on the on the loudspeaker telling the kids that they needed to get out of there, and he was really being he was being nasty about it. You don't need to talk to the kids like that. Mm -hmm. Well, as one of the one of the 
trucks is pulling out of the parking lot. The guy beeps his horn, sticks his middle finger up over the top of the truck and yells a term of endearment that we don't need to share on this podcast anyway. And off they went. Well, the, that troop chased him down and uh, pulled him over. And when we got there, you know, I'm on my FTO, so I'm basically supposed to be learning the job. When I got there, he tells me to go get the girl's information out of the front seat of the truck. She's sitting in the middle between the two guys in the middle. And he says, get her information and write her a ticket for no seatbelt. <sighs> so I go up and I let her know that I need her information, that I'm going to be writing her a ticket. And of course, she's like, well, I, I had my seatbelt on. And, and I really don't know whether she did or not. And I don't agree with the fact that I'm harassing kids. And I didn't agree with it, not even a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote the ticket and I, I brought it back and told that officer that he needed to sign the ticket. And he told me, no, I needed to sign it. And I said, no. First of all, I don't appreciate harassing kids. This is why people hate cops. Mm-hmm. And I gave him a rather rough rendition on my feelings on all of this. And he ended up signing the ticket. But when I got back in the car, my FTO basically told me that I will not talk to a senior officer that way. And I will do as I'm told and on and on. Well, I know that's the way it's supposed to be. But that didn't work for me. Hmm. I think it was about, I I can remember the next call that I really didn't enjoy was we got called to a, uh, a fight in a bar involving a gun. And when we got there, there was, there was nobody there. But when I talked to the people in the bar, it was two brothers. They were shooting pool. They ended up going to fist city by way of knuckle junction. And the one off, uh, the one guy, the brother went out to the truck, took his gun out of the glove box, tucked it in his pants and walked home. And they wanted me to write a reckless display of a firearm. And there was no reckless display. That's not that's not what happened there. Right. That's well, two brothers that was securing a weapon yeah. because he knew he had too much to drink or whatever, right? Right. It's the same thing I would have told anybody to do. You know, don't leave your gun behind. Take your gun. You're responsible for it. And go home. And they did exactly what I would have told him to do. But they wanted me to write him for this. And uh, I wrote that report four different times. But it was pretty much said the same thing. Just what I told you happened. And I was told I needed to write it with a reckless display. If he's not guilty, they'll figure it out in court. I don't think that they really understand that the next morning in the newspaper, his name's going to be in the newspaper that he got arrested for this. Mm -hmm. He's probably not going to make it to work. He may lose his job and all of this because somebody wanted to do creative writing with a report. And that's just not who we are. That's not what a law enforcement officer's job is. And I made it really clear, even when the sergeant told me I needed to write it that way. It's not going to happen. That That's just not going to happen. I am not going to prostitute my integrity because you think I need to. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much uh, another nail in the coffin. There was a few other things that happened to that way where I, I'm just not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't and subsequently ended up leaving with uh, leaving the cop shop. Again, that transition from being a military man to uh, a civilian was a little bit rough for me when it comes to that sort of stuff. 
I, uh, how about volunteer firefighting? I know that you had mentioned that you did that. I can tell you this. I spent 11 years as a volunteer firefighter and the biggest day of my life and the worst day of my life was probably on that truck. I ran out of a station. When I first started, there was like nine of us that ran out of that station, but we got a new fire chief and his rules were that you couldn't have any facial hair because you wanted you to be able to get a good seal on your Scott pack. And when you tell people in my area that they're going to have to shave, uh, they'll do something else. And I ended up being the only firefighter running out of that station for a couple of years. Uh, I, I can remember one, one time I was, uh, I was at home. It was, I think it was like a Sunday morning and a call came out for a pediatric respiratory. We had a young child that's not breathing. And I jump in the truck, run down to the fire station, jump in the engine. And I, as fast as I could go, I got to this house. When I got there, there was an older woman standing on the front porch holding a baby. And this baby was, it couldn't have been more than four weeks old. And and it lost its color. It was, it was like it was just not getting any oxygen. And I grabbed an oxygen mask, non-rebreather, put it all over this baby, opened the oxygen up all the way, inverted it. And pretty soon the baby started to take some of the oxygen in. I did a knuckle rub on his back and the baby started to gasp. And finally the, uh, the ambulance showed up and they took the baby from me and they put it in the box there and they started an IV. And when they did that kid started to scream and <laughs> I've never been that happy probably in my life because this baby is screaming. And I can tell you this. Now, when I go out to eat, if there's a kid screaming in the next booth, it doesn't bother me a lick. <laughs> I love that sound. But that child, mother, about four years later, walks into my office and she goes, you don't know who I am, but I want to give you this picture. And she gave me a picture of that young man getting up on the counter into some birthday cake. And she says, sir, this would have never happened if it hadn't have been for you. Wow. And uh, I said, ma'am, I want you to know, I was just there. God made that happen. Mm -hmm. that, that is an incredible feeling. I had, I had some times on that truck where it didn't work out for me. I had uh, the terrible opportunity to do CPR on a nine-year-old kid with his dad. And, you know, you have tears rolling out of your eyes because you know that you're not getting this back. It's a, it's a trauma code. And, you don't very often get a trauma code back. Mm. It was being a firefighter and, and we really as civilians kind of expect the firefighter to be there, but you got to know that there's a heart, a soul and a mind in that uniform. Mm -hmm. There's somebody that's a dad, somebody that's a son, you know, moms and these firefighters see this kind of stuff every single day. And we expect them just to continue to march. You've pulled people out of the back of their car through their windows. I can remember another one where we rolled up on a, a collision and a, one of our brand new firefighters is on the end of a fire hose. The lady that's inside the car and the car is fully involved and he's spraying water on her and he is just coming apart as he watches this person expire mm. inside the car. There's nothing he can do for them. That person is dying right in front of you. That will rip your guts out if you have a heart. 
it truly will. Absolutely. And I, I came up to him and I, I, I knew what he was going through. And I says, can I help you? And he, he couldn't even talk to me. He just sprayed water. And these are the things that I think that the, the civilian populace that isn't doing this day to day just expects people to be able to handle. And in some cases, they don't. In some cases, it'll be somebody that reminds them of their own child that may change their career. We're having a tremendous amount of these guys that are ending up trying to commit suicide to get away from the demons that come visit them in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Our law enforcement's the same way, and a lot of times our military, the same thing. Those demons come visit you in the middle of the night. It's something that you just can't get away from. It's a, it's a we call it PTSD, or what, what I call PTSI, it is a post-traumatic stress injury to the subconscious that imprints the subconscious and it can come visit you at any time, any moment. And you don't know what, what actually causes it to, to happen. As a firefighter, my biggest, best, some of my best days were on that truck. Some of my worst days were on that truck. And I'd remember both of those. And the way I justify it in my mind is I try to take the lesson God put me there for a reason. He put me there to save that child or to save the child on his behalf for a reason. There was a lesson there. And there's a lesson there when you lose one too. Mm -hmm. Their book is closed and the end chapter had you in it. And it's, it's there so we can understand things and understand life. And what I always try to say is take the lesson, leave the luggage behind. And that's where I ended up starting spirit equine therapy, because here you get to interact with a spirit, with a heart and with a soul that's bigger than we'll ever understand. With a 1200 pound horse, you can leave that luggage behind. It's an incredible feeling. It's something incredible to watch. It's it's something that you can't describe. And it's a feeling that you can't go and buy off the shelf at Walmart when you actually see some of the good that can happen when you're doing the right thing for the right reasons, my brother, it is incredible, incredible to a level. I just can't even explain. We're going to take a short break. And on that note, we are going to talk uh, when we come back about uh, life after the military and, and exactly what uh, Eric is doing right now with his, uh, equine therapy because it's absolutely amazing if you haven't been through equine therapy before you're missing out i'll tell you that um but yeah we're going to share more of that story in just a minute we'll be right back this week's veterans resource nonprofit of the week is warrior rising we help veterans succeed in business warrior rising empowers u.s military veterans and their immediate family members by providing them opportunities to create sustainable businesses perpetuate the hiring of fellow american veterans and earn their future we accomplish this by translating your training values and work ethic into a powerful opportunity for success visit www.warriorrising.org for more information and we're back we are talking with uh Eric Anderson, who is a uh, basically a veteran, a Marine veteran that basically is uh, now transitioning, has transitioned out of the military and is now starting a nonprofit organization or started a nonprofit organization of equine therapy. And uh, you alluded to it before the break, but man, if, if you've never 
experienced what horses can do at the um, mental healing level, you're missing out. That's all I can tell you. And um, let's talk a little bit about uh, um, why and when and and how you started uh, your um, you know your time with horses and and uh, yeah, let's talk about spirit equine therapy. So I got to tell you, I uh, I've done work, or not, I don't call it work. I've I've had the opportunity to participate with Black Dagger Military Hunt Club, and that's an organization that takes guys hunting after the military get gets guys that normally wouldn't get out and get to shoot guns and uh take some hunting one of the things they did was called a top shot shoot every year usually around the second week in november pretty close to the marine corps birthday they do a top shot shoot now if you haven't seen the the show top shot on history channel i was on season two of top shot i was a the cowboy from webster florida and they take 16 people from across the country, bring them into a house, kind of like a reality TV show, and they compete in shooting competitions. Well, they contacted me because they knew I was on the show and I lived in Florida and asked me if I would come down and be a coach for the Top Shot shoot. What they do is they take 20 veterans, break them up in groups of five, and they have four teams that compete in different shooting competitions. And these, some of these guys, uh, we had one guy who was, was blind and he, he got to shoot with an adaptive equipment. We had another guy who was a quadriplegic and he actually, they have adaptive equipment where he could move the rifle with his mouth and the trigger was him biting down on a toggle that allowed him to squeeze the trigger with his mouth. It is incredible what these guys do at Black Dagger Military Hunt Club. And I can tell you that the gratification that these guys experience being not only together and experiencing the camaraderie they had when they were in the military, but also be able to compete in a shooting sport is off the chain. I can tell you a short story. We were, I had the, the guys on my team the five guys and we were going to shoot in one of the competitions. I needed two of them to shoot an MP4. Three of them were going to shoot a Glock. And, uh, one of the guys on my team, an army veteran was in a wheelchair and he couldn't move his hands. His fingers didn't work. And his legs were, were he'd, he'd stepped on an IED overseas and he was pretty profoundly handicapped. And he looked at me and, he, and he's almost got tears in his eyes. And he says to me, he goes, Eric, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to compete. And I go, what's going on? He goes, well, I can't, I can't move my hands. I don't, I have no way to hold the firearm. And I'm thinking to myself, we've got to make this work. I said, Hey, I'll tell you what, I'll hold the, the, the Glock. I'll hold it in my hand. You use your wrist to get the side alignment, the sight picture. And when you tell me to, I'll squeeze the trigger. So we get up and I, I got my arm wrapped around. I got pictures to show, but I got my arm around him and my hands right in front of him and he's moving his wrist to get my hand adjusted. And I'm, I'm looking straight down at the deck. And as he's getting his side alignment, he gets it and he says, okay. He says, start to squeeze, start to squeeze, squeeze. And when that firearm went off, the round went down range. When that target exploded, that was one of the biggest days in his life and mine. 
that feeling was incredible. And if you've never felt it, I'm going to tell you, that is a bigger addiction than any drug you're ever going to find on the street. You have just done something with somebody that thought they would never get to do something like that. And that's the kind of stuff that we're here to do. It's incredible. Uh, I also did some work with a veterans group, uh, Complete Parachute Solutions out of the land. And these guys bring the, the troops together, let them have a night, a party at the president's house. The next day they get to jump out of airplanes and they do it with a tandem instructor. So guys that have never jumped out of airplanes get to actually jump out of airplanes. There's one picture that I have of a Marine that has no legs, no legs. And as he's coming down towards the ground, he's got his, his arm up in a fist and he's just yelling, ooh, raw, as loud as he can. That is what I'm talking about. Well, I never thought that I would be able to have an organization that would make that impact. Now, I have horses. My wife and I do cowboy mounted shooting all over the country. We uh, ride horses and shoot balloon targets from our horses, and it's just a tremendous amount of fun. The adrenaline is off the chart. My horses are very tame horses. They're a lot like dogs. We treat them with respect. You'll never see one of my horses get hit or punched or kicked or their face jerked off. We treat them like family, and our horses are very docile. About... Two years ago, I got invited up to one of the other equine therapy places to do a cowboy church and do a horse demonstration. And I met a doctor, and this doctor is incredible. Her name's Dr. Royster. And Dr. Royster and I became immediate friends, and we've kept in contact. She's come out and visited my horses. And one day she calls me and she says, Eric, I I really need to bring somebody out there to you. And her and another doctor come out and they've got a young lady that's in pretty bad shape mentally. And they asked me if they could, you know, do some equine therapy. So I helped the young lady. We get a horse in, we get him brushed off and she's brushing him. And you can see that there's kind of a a little bit of a bond going. We saddle the horse up and we walk out to my round pen. And a round pen is an area that's about about, in my case, about 40 feet round, but it gives you an enclosed area where the person can interact with the horse. And I take her out to the round pin and put her up on the horse and teach her how to walk him on. They're walking around the round pin. Pretty soon I get her into a trot and then they start to slow lope. And she's slow loping in the left lead with this horse. And (laughs) it was... It was incredible. She she just starts to she's starting to she's starting to cry, and she she starts crying a lot. And I step out of the round pen and I close the gate. And the doctor said, "What's going on?" I said, "I don't have any idea what's going on, but I know that God's got this." And that lady went around there probably ten or fifteen times. And when she got off that horse, she was completely transitioned into another person. Hmm. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, 
the doc looks at me and she goes, you know, we really should be doing this with more people than just her. Probably about five days later, I had a chaplain from one of the local police departments and another fella come out here and ride with me. And they're like, man, you really need to do this if this is what you want to do. And I was like, yeah, and I'm not the best administrator, I know. Matter of fact, I'm probably in the bottom of that list of administrators. And there's so much that goes into getting a 501c3 started and that sort of stuff. And the chaplain left here, and he must have called somebody that I know that has one. And I get a call from Tammy, Tammy Leedy, within hours. And she says, Eric, if you want to be a 501c3, you'll be one tomorrow. I was like, wow, really? She says it's that easy because she already has what's called open hands animal rescue. It's a 501c3 where they rescue animals and dogs, and they they actually take these dogs to training, and they're training them and then turning them over to veterans as their dogs. So you got a, a, a troop that needs a dog, and the dog therapy is incredible. And these folks are taking dogs that don't have a life and putting them with this veteran, and their relationship is incredible. Open Hands Animal Rescue is the name of her 501c3. She says, we can add your company, you know, whatever you want to name it, to that and start your business where you can do the right thing for the right reasons. Well, I went in and I talked to my wife. The next day I called her and said, I'm in. Let's do it. So we started Spirit Equine Therapy within two days of that. We just got started. We we just got underway. And if you know something about horses, this is an expensive endeavor. But by gosh, we're doing the right thing for the right reasons. So whatever it takes. Amen. Now, I uh, I was fortunate enough. Doctor Royster invited me down to a uh, like it was a convention. The American Legion Post sixty nine. They uh, have a a deal where they support veterans groups like this, the, the 501 C threes and they, they do what they can to help us out. And they invited me down and <laughs> five o'clock on a Friday is not where you want to be Orlando. Okay. Orlando at five o'clock on a Friday is a disaster. Mm -hmm. So I, I got down there finally and I walk into a room and there's a whole, the whole place is full of folks just like us people that are trying to do the right thing for the right reasons for the right people when it needs to happen. And they handed me the microphone and I told my story and we were part of the group immediately. Fast forward like three months, they invited me down. They were, they brought the Vietnam war memorial to the post 69 down there. And I brought one of my horses down and, uh, they, they actually took the American flag from the color guard and my horse and I led the 2.2 mile walk for the 22 veterans that commit suicide. And it was operation vet relief. And it's, it's an incredible organization of people that actually care. And I know we hear people all over the country that are doing 22 push-ups a day. Well, what are you really doing to help this? Mm -hmm. 
What are you actually stepping out and making happen? And this is full of people that are out there making it happen, doing something besides just talking about it. And I am so glad to be part of that operation and that organization. It is incredible. Operation Vet Relief. What's our mission? Is to help these folks that are having a hard time transitioning and understanding. And the single best thing, in my opinion, is getting these guys together. I uh, I just got to go to SOF Missions, and it was a four-day retreat of special operators. And it was an opportunity for, in my case, nine guys to get together for four days and have that camaraderie, the esprit de corps, experience different things from chiropractors to uh, we did uh, where they stick the needles, acupuncture. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did they did a they had a a physical therapist. We did a workout every morning. Had a Polynesian three meals a day, Polynesian type food with fish and chicken. You know the stuff that's good for you. Mm-hmm. The workout. They did so many things, and then every evening, we all got together, and we kind of told our story, and there was there were several guys in there that had never really told their story, never felt in a position where they were amongst their brothers, where they could say what was going on in their life, and <laughs> my brother, I can tell you this, it will definitely rip your heart out when you can hear some of the things that our guys have gone through and they've been asked to come back here and try to interact with the public in a normal manner. Things like that don't make you normal anymore. Your whole perception on life changes when you've gone through a traumatic situation, just like being a firefighter, law enforcement officer, a military veteran, your subconscious gets imprinted with things that sometimes you can't get rid of. We have a, uh, a system. Dr. Royster has, it's incredible what I've seen her do to guys and gals that are having such a hard time, mm-hmm. but it just, man, it is incredible. Doing the right thing for the right reasons is why spirit equine therapy exists. And <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to make it, the, the finances are going to come because I know God's going to look out for us. But I'm telling you right now, you can't buy that feeling off the shelf at Walmart. You can't get that feeling at the local gas station. You cannot get the feeling that you get when you watch somebody transition from wanting to kill themselves to being proud to be an American again. It is incredible. Amen to that. I did have, I did have the opportunity here recently because I live in the same county as the villages. And I told you that I ran for sheriff in this county, and I plan to do it again. Uh, I haven't filed yet, but I do think that I'm going to because I think doing the right thing for the right reasons is what we need to do. But I got to speak to a group, and we have a huge number of people that are retired, firefighters, law enforcement, first responders, and military. And my words were this. Look, guys and gals, this is your last duty station before you go out and report to Bushnell National Cemetery. And I want you to know this, when you report in at the cemetery, there's not separate seating for Democrats or Republicans or independents or black or white or male or female, all the things that divide us end on your last breath. 
we're Americans. That's who we are. Mm-hmm. And I want you to know everybody in the room got on their feet because they know this is not who we are. We're Americans. You got to love this country and, and absolutely 100% support the folks that have supported and defended our Constitution. We're Americans. That's who we are. Amen to that, man. Wow. I mean, that was what a great, powerful speech. Because, like I said, it's just been, I mean, from all the different things that you've experienced, um, uh, you know, you and I got to talk just a, briefly about the equine stuff. And, and I can't tell you, I got to witness firsthand um, what these horses can do for our mental health. And everybody has trauma. There's not a person that's walking the face of the earth that doesn't have some some form of trauma, right? And so whether it's on the battlefield or whether it's uh, as a first responder or whether it's in everyday life, um, there are organizations out there and there's things that can help you heal. And so uh, when you talk about these horses, um, I shared a story with you that, you know, with my TV show, I was able to, we document the lives of our U.S. military veterans one story at a time. And, um, and, And to your point, at the individual level, it's important that we express and let Americans know that freedom isn't free. And uh, those who didn't pay the ultimate sacrifice continue to pay every day in the form of, of post-traumatic stress. And, uh, and so we, and you touched upon it earlier about that, that screaming child in a, in a restaurant. Right. And I always say this, man, we're pretty quick to judge and I'm one of them. Trust me. I'm, I'm one of them. Um, you know, you're out at a restaurant, nice restaurant or something, kids screaming, something's happening. You know, you all, you want to, cast a shadow and say, oh, if that was my kid, I'd be doing this or they they would never be getting away with that. But hey, at the end of the day, you've never walked a a mile in their shoes. And so therefore I try to, I try to be a a better American, a better human and and a better individual all around and try and take everything with a grain and try and understand it. But um, that being said, in heading back to the equine stuff, um, if you've never experienced what equine therapy has to offer, um, you know, with Spirit Equine Therapy or, or, you know, another organization that we support is Saddles and Service. But there's a, there's some of them out there and uh, go find it because it's absolutely amazing. And like you said, when you make the connection with that horse, um, I can tell you firsthand I did and uh, there's nothing like it. Um, it's spiritual. It's it's uh, emotional. It's uh, it's something that I believe every American needs to do because we're all broken and those horses know how to help fix us. That's That's all I can say. So... Um, I was at a, 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 a get together here recently and there was one fellow that's in, in the group. He says, you know, I'm, I'm not spiritual. I just, I'm just not spiritual. And I said, let me, let me explain something to you right away. The difference between your body dead and your body alive is your spirit. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. The difference between a dead horse and a live horse is the spirit. And when your spirit connects with a horse, it's like no other connection I have ever experienced. Now, I've had dogs, and the dog people get mad when I say what I'm about to say. But I promise you, this is a fact. Now, you can go on YouTube. I have a video up that's called, it's Lady, L-A-D-Y, Lake, L-A-K-E, NOV. I did it in November. NOV. And it is a it's a uh, GoPro video of me shooting off of one of my horses. I do four runs. All you're going to see is the gun come out and me shooting the targets and the horse's head in front of me. When you're shooting off of a horse like that, 
you do not have a conscious thought. It is a subconscious ride because if you're thinking about it, it took too long. Mm -hmm. And people are like, well, what do you mean? Well, have you ever drove to work and don't remember the drive? Sure you have. Mm -hmm. You've done that because you didn't need to have a conscious thought because the get there was a subconscious thought. When you get to where you're shooting the way I shoot off the back of my horse, there is no conscious thought. Your subconscious is communicating with that horse. When you consciously think about what you're going to do, then you're having conscious communication with the horse. Horses communicate in your conscious and your subconscious, just like you know how your dog sometimes doesn't like one person or another, or a dog will sense when somebody's doing something they shouldn't be. They sense that subconscious and so will a horse and they actually heal you. If you allow them to, if you allow that connection, if you put your guard down, quit trying to bully them and just relax and be in the moment, you will feel your spirit touch with that horse. It will change your life. Amen to that. I, 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 it happened to me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm living proof of it, man. And I'm, I'm telling you, you could not have said it any better. Um, you are absolutely right. If, if you will allow it to happen, um, I, I, I share a story, and I'm sure that my listeners are probably sick of hearing me talk about this. But man, um, at the end of the day, we, I went out to saddles and service, and I was going out there to obviously uh, document a, another veteran's life who had gone through equine therapy, and uh, he himself was. Uh, he'd gone through what they call their hero training, and he himself was an instructor now. So he's a veteran who was instructing other veterans or putting other veterans through the the healing process. And uh, I went out there to think, you know, I was documenting his life, and it ended up that he ran me through a condensed process. But it it it, uh, it affected me in the way that you just explained. And and that being said, the day's over, the film crew's done, everyone's retired to the ranch and eating and you know kicking back and you know whatever watching TV. And I'm. I found myself back down at the at the stables, um, just going to the the horse's pen and basically standing there and talking to him subconsciously. Right? I mean, not words. I, I wasn't out there talking, but it was one of those things where I, I'd spend hours down there um, into the evening until it was dark outside, and and that horse never left my side and and knew exactly what I was there for and and gave me what I was asking of it. Recently, I had a. A lady bring me a, a stud, a little a little stud horse. He was almost, and he's called a colt. He's he was like two and a half years old. And my my deal with her was that she wasn't to do anything with this horse. If if I'm going to train it, I want you to leave it alone completely. Don't no bad experiences. And she couldn't get it in the horse trailer. I had to go pick it up, and I brought it down to my house. I turned it out the first day. The second day, I got on that horse, I rode that horse, and I rode the horse through obstacles. It had never been touched before. As far as what we call breaking, breaking is not what we need to do. You, you don't break your wife. You lead her when you take her out on the dance floor. And if you lead the horse, and the horse is willing, and the horse can feel your spirit, it will go with you. It really is that easy. I get it all the time. I don't understand. My horse won't do what I'm telling it to do. I don't understand my horse. If you really want to understand your horse, you've got to learn to listen. You've got to learn to listen to your horse. And I think both of us can agree about 90% of communication is nonverbal. Mm -hmm. It's that way for the horse too. 
Now your voice inflections and the raise in your voice that indicates your the way you're feeling. But most of your communication is nonverbal. Allow that animal to speak with you, and you will be surprised how much better you will feel at the end of the day. So right, so right. So if if someone would like to get in touch with you and uh, go through the Spirit Equine Therapy Program, uh, how do they get in touch with you? Okay, so we have we have a Facebook page. It's Spirit Equine Therapy, and it's it's actually our. Uh, Facebook page. There'll be some pictures. You'll see a picture of me and one of my horses on uh, on the front. That was the one where we were down at the uh, Vietnam Wall. And it's Spirit Equine Therapy. And our email is S-E-T. Both those are capitals. And each one of them has a period. So it's S period, E period, T period. Spirit Equine Therapy at gmail.com and that'll put you into the email address and the ladies will pick you up. There's 15, I have 15 volunteers willing to help with this. Uh, Dr. Royster is the facilitator for it also. And my phone number is 352-455-0803. And I'll do what I can to help you. Uh, We've, we've brought horses out to places for people, for them to uh, get an opportunity just to pet the horse and have a, a positive interaction with the horse. But doing the right thing for the right reasons is always right, regardless of the outcome. But that's us. Spirit Equine Therapy, see us on Facebook, send us an email, and the website should be up soon. Like I told you, we just got started, <laughs> but hey, this is, this is cool. I really, really, really enjoy this. Awesome. Well, I enjoy having you. And I know that there was a few others that you had mentioned that I want to make sure that we talk about. It's uh, that Black Dagger Military Hunt Club. That's another one that if you're a veteran and you're looking for something amazing, um, make sure you check that out. Um, also, Open Hands Animal Rescue. Make sure you check that out. Uh, Operation Vet Relief. And then the YouTube video that you had talked about, which was uh, Lady Lake NOV. Uh, make sure you check that stuff out. But yeah, um, as a nonprofit, I've started two of them. So I understand the the trials, the tribulations, the pitfalls. It's not easy, but um, man, I wish you the best. And, and we certainly want to support you for sure. So um, again, I love the work that you're doing. So thank you for, thank you for all that. Um, thank you for having us. I appreciate you doing this and getting the word out. It's incredible. You know, the more people that get involved and you don't have to, you don't have to come out and work with the horses. You know, if you just want to donate some money to help us keep them fed and yep. support a vet, that, that works too. The uh, Open Hands Animal Rescue, they're doing the right thing for the right reasons. They're helping the animals and they're helping the people. And they're using those animals to put them with somebody that probably wouldn't have uh, somebody to interact with. You know, uh, they did a study. Well, they did. Actually, I'm going to tell you one thing. They They did a study with children that went off to camp they go into summer camp the ones that were the most homesick were the ones that had animals at home the family dog Mm -hmm. and if you look at people who have gone through trauma with losing something more often than not losing a pet is the largest problem they've had in their life that was the biggest pitfall the one thing that's hurt them the most was that animal God put them here for a reason. Yep. Treat them like you should. Absolutely. And 
One more phone number. It's Tammy Leedy, and she is in charge of o OHAR, Open Hands Animal Rescue. Her phone number is 352-843-2303. If you give her a call, and just do what you can if you can. If you can't, just pray for us. We will do the right thing for the right reasons. Amen to that. And real quick, just so that, uh, again, if people want to get in touch with you, it was uh, S period, E period, T period, spirit, equine therapy at gmail.com. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And phone number is 352-455-0803. Um, and yes, sir. If they, they want to get in touch with Tammy uh, at Open Hands Animal Rescue, it's 352 843 2303. Yes, sir. Excellent. Yes, sir. Well, I always like to close the show out by asking a couple parting questions. Um, my question to you would be, you know, what would you say to a veteran and or a family member who might be listening to the show who's who's struggling currently with some post-traumatic stress um, and uh, they're looking for a little bit of help? So the number one thing is we need to focus on the positive. And we, we focus on the positive and our subconscious gets imprinted through repetition. So do everything you can to cast those demons out. Reach out to another veteran. Reach out to a veteran's organization. These people really are here to help you. And saying that I need help or I need somebody to talk to is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Just like crying. And I say, people say, well, he's a sissy. He's crying. Those tears that are leaking from our eyes. That's passion mm -hmm. leaking from our body. Passionate people are what make this life worth living. Reach out to your brethren. Think about this. Think about this for a minute. Think about somebody that you know that really needed help, but they didn't ask you for it. How cheated you would feel that you didn't get to help them. Do not keep somebody from allowing to help you. Reach out and let them get that feeling and let them help you save your life. We really are a band of brothers, regardless of whether you're military, law enforcement, or a firefighter. We're all Americans. And it isn't just the first responders in the military. It's all of us. We're all Americans. We take care of our own. Allow us that opportunity to help you if you need help. Reaching out is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Amen to that. Amen to that. Um, I know we spoke uh, quickly about Dr. Royster. Uh, we've had Dr. Royster on the show. Feel free to go check out her podcast because she was our very first podcast when we started this thing um, at the beginning of the year. But, um, man, the things that, that you guys have been able to do as it relates to advancements for the treatment of post-traumatic stress has been absolutely amazing. So I know Dr. Royster has trip therapy, um, again, in, in, in a nutshell, it gives you the ability to disconnect the emotion from the trauma, which essentially uh, relieves you of, of a lot of the, um, the, the, the demons, right. That we spoke about earlier. So make sure that uh, if you're, if you're interested, get in touch with, uh, with Eric or get in touch with myself or Dr. Royster um, because it's, it's real. There's, there's, we can make tomorrow better than today for our veterans and their family members. So uh, with that, uh, Eric, is there any parting words that you'd like to say real quick? Hey, I would like to say, please understand that we are all Americans. Do not let the stupidity divide us. We're Americans. We're not Democrats. We're not Republicans. We're not male, female, black, white. We're none of that. Mm -hmm. We're American. 
Let's stand together. We're all a band of brothers and sisters. Let's take care of our own. Semper Fidelis. God bless America. God bless America. Thank you so much, Eric, for sharing your story with us. It was absolutely uplifting, encouraging, man. I love your patriotism because I share in that same exact thing. Uh, Life's a journey. Sometimes it can be a struggle, but there are always somebody somewhere out there, organizations that want to help you out. Eric just told you of a few of of the ones that he's associated with. Uh, Obviously, the show's associated with. Post-traumatic stress is a silent killer, but there are ways of healing. Uh, If you'd like more information on today's podcast, please feel free to visit our website, operationhealingheroes.org. And until next week, when we talk to uh, another veteran and share their story, um, I hope everyone has a great week. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Warrior Rising. We help veterans succeed in business. Warrior Rising empowers U.S. military veterans and their immediate family members by providing them opportunities to create sustainable businesses, perpetuate the hiring of fellow American veterans, and earn their future. We accomplish this by translating your training, values, and work ethic into a powerful opportunity for success. Visit www.warriorrising.org for more information. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com and by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great.